and they refused to serve this world's gods. Jesus said, in this world you will have struggles. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, therefore the world will hate you. Just as it hated me, so will it hate you. And certainly Israel saw that when they were enslaved in Egypt. They saw and they suffered because of the hatred of God's enemies for him and therefore for those who serve him. And so they prayed for deliverance and God heard their plea. Um, This morning we're going to read a text that reveals how he delivered, how he finally um, brought them out of their slavery. Now we're going to look at uh, Exodus 12 Verses 29 to 39, we're going to read a little beyond that so that we can see the full context. So we'll start reading at verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, uh, and take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. 
At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was night. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved children of God, through the resurrected Son, we have seen throughout our tour of Exodus that the plagues sent against Egypt were meant to be a living sermon pointing to what he ultimately would do on a far greater scale. We've seen that especially with regard to the judgment God will one day bring. A judgment revealing the rebellion of those who serve false gods. A judgment intended to humble those who serve false gods. A a judgment that punishes those who refuse to serve Him. But we've also seen that God's judgment would not fall upon those who do serve Him. How He would set a distinction between His people who trust in Him, who follow after Him, and those who refuse. Those who rebel will be judged, but those who serve Him will be not just spared, but blessed. That's what we saw last week, isn't it? Not only would God spare His servants, but He would deliver them in the midst of great victory. Now in last week's text, we saw how God taught His people to trust in Jesus as the Lamb who would die in their place. But in today's text, the image shifts. No longer is Jesus seen as the Lamb, but now God reveals His intention to deliver His people through the death of the firstborn. The message of this morning's text is the message, ultimately, of the cross and of the resurrection. In these events that occurred a full millennium and a half before Jesus would be born of Mary and laid in a manger... We see how the Lord delivers His people by the death of the firstborn Son. That's our theme this morning. Now, of course, the death of the the Son stands at the forefront of the text, and it's essential to understanding the whole text. However, it's not really the emphasis of the text. The emphasis is on the result of what Jesus does. The emphasis is on what God brings about by means of the death of the firstborn. The results are foreshadowed in what Israel itself experienced. But it's brought about in all its fullness for us and for our children and for the generations to come. The Lord delivers all His children by the death of the firstborn son. And the first part of the deliverance God reveals to us here is deliverance from the reign of this world's ruler. And that's our first point. To understand the effects of the deliverance, however, we we need to understand first how God brought it about. Verse 29, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Why did He do that? There are at least two reasons that our text shows us. Immediately, this was the fulfillment of God's justice against old Egypt. When God first called Moses, he taught Moses what message Pharaoh must hear. Exodus 4 verse 22. 
You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And then Moses is to command Pharaoh, Release my son that he may go forth and serve me. And then he warns Pharaoh, If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. However, despite all the warnings that God gave to Pharaoh and indeed to all Egypt, Despite all the foretastes of God's judgment, despite all the opportunities God gave for Pharaoh to relent and let God's son depart, still Israel was held captive, enslaved, required to submit to Egypt and its manifested false god, Pharaoh. So God fulfilled his promise of judgment against Pharaoh's firstborn. He brought that final plague and it was a comprehensive plague. The son of Pharaoh was struck dead, but also the son of the lowliest captive of Pharaoh. All of Egypt, you see, had followed Pharaoh in holding Israel captive, in prospering because of Israel's labor, and therefore all of Egypt suffered along with Pharaoh. Even the firstborn of the livestock, what little was left, even they were struck down. Now, we don't know by what means God accomplished this, but the effects were catastrophic. Remember, Moses had warned Pharaoh publicly that this plague was about to come. So Egypt was waiting, was watching, was dreading the fulfillment of God's word. And when the first of the sons was found dead, a cry of alarm was raised. Other beds were checked, other corpses were found. The outcry grew until the sound of mourning absolutely filled Egypt. It's hard to grasp the scope of the judgment that they experienced that night. How many children were destroyed for their nation's sin? How many adults were struck down by the same plague that destroyed their firstborn child? How many mothers wail, inconsolable at the loss of their firstborn? And yet it wasn't merely a loss of life that was poured out upon the nation. To those ancient cultures, the firstborn, especially the firstborn son, was regarded as being tremendously significant. Firstborn sons were given great honor. They generally received a special blessing and special privileges from their parents. They typically received a double inheritance When their fathers died, they were regarded as the leaders of all their siblings because, you see, the firstborn son was seen as the assurance that the family would have a future. In that son, the family's name would carry on for another generation. In him, the family's reputation would persist in the nation. In him, the nation itself saw its future secure. So by destroying their firstborn, God was sending a message. Because you have rebelled against me, your very future is being judged. Your coming generations are being wiped out. Your name is being all but deleted. But Israel was spared. Israel was spared because of her perfect submission to God? No. 
Now, Israel faltered. You'll recall that early on they came to Moses and Aaron and said, What are you doing? Just leave us alone. Surely it's better by not provoking Pharaoh. And and we'll see when they go out in the wilderness, their rebellious spirit had not been entirely quelled. And yet they were spared. Not because they were worthy, but because of another firstborn who would die for them. That other son, who was also the lamb, was the greater firstborn son. He's the one called in Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That son would suffer and die instead of Israel. And then he would arise from the grave, the firstborn from the dead. In that son and in his death, Not to mention his triumph over death. The greater son would fully deliver all who trust in him. All who follow after him. He would deliver us first of all from the reign of this world's ruler. See Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not merely the enemy who held captive God's ancient people. He also was the living representation of what Ephesians 6 verse 12 calls The rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The death of the firstborn in Egypt points to the death of the greater firstborn son who would conquer all that held us captive. Of that greater firstborn son we heard in our assurance of pardon. He partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And 15 years, 1,500 years after all this came to pass in Egypt, that was fulfilled. The Son of God was hung on the cross and died both to atone for the sins of all his people throughout the generations and to defeat all who would enslave them to death and to fear and to sin. And when Jesus arose from the grave, the victory was complete and we, God's children, were free. Pharaoh's command to send forth the children of Israel, that is huge. Because it shows not merely God's authority over the men who rule this world, but also his ability to defeat Satan and all the dark forces of the spiritual realm that held us captive from the very start. In Christ, he delivers us from the reign of this world's rulers. But there's even more going on here. When God delivered his children, he didn't merely remove their chains. He also delivered to them the riches of this world's kingdoms, which is the second thing we see here. Look at verse 33 in your text. It's worth noting that the verb translated were urgent. The Egyptians were urgent with the people. That's one of the verbs that was used earlier to describe Pharaoh's heart. To be strong, to harden with Pharaoh. The Egyptians had been strong-willed about Israel. They had been insistent right along with their king that Israel not depart. 
that their slave labor force, which enriched them, which prevented them from doing all this hard labor, that it not be released. But now, having seen God's wrath up close and personal, now they become strong-willed about releasing God's people. The people of Egypt were terrified, and rightly so. The Lord's wrath had become more terrifying with each and every plague. And on this night, every house in Egypt was filled with mourning. It was no leap of logic to conclude that if they continued in their rebellion, they all would die. And so they began urging the children of Israel to depart and to do so quickly. But, but God had commanded His people, before they depart, to take something with them. In chapter 11, He said to Moses, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. Now that can't have been easy. Put yourself in Israel's shoes. You can hear the wailing throughout Egypt. Both you and the Egyptians know that your God, Yahweh, is the one who has destroyed all of their firstborn. The Egyptians now have begged you to leave. Just go. Just get out. What response would you expect if you answered them, well, before we go, can we have silver and gold and maybe your best clothes? Was not the death of our children enough for you? Was not the destruction of so many sufficient? But God commanded it. And so they did it. And amazingly, the response they received was not what one would expect. Instead, verse 36 If I can see it. Verse 36 says that the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. He gave them favor. You understand what that means? It means they recognized the justice in what happened. Though they were grieving, though they were mourning deeply, they came to see that they had been warned. They had been urged. This destruction, this grief was of their own making. And so when God's people asked them for gold and for silver that would reward them, repay them a bit for the suffering and the grief that they had endured, they gave freely. They plundered, Moses says, the Egyptians. Now again, this is not merely historical trivia. In having them plunder Egypt, God is showing what is to come. When Adam was created, young people, I want you to think about this. When Adam was created, he was given all of the creation for what purpose? It was to serve God. When God said, exercise dominion over the earth, it was to honor and glorify God with all of it, with all of those resources, with all of that land, with everything that God made. They were to serve the Lord. But when Adam fell, Satan laid claim to all of it. An unrighteous claim, but right or wrong, Satan led mankind to use the riches of this world for evil. 
They would use what God intended for glorifying Him in order to glorify themselves. They would take what God had made and use it to portray false gods. They would use it all to serve Satan and their own self-centered greed. This world and its kingdoms took captive the creation God had formed for His glory. But now here God is showing the misuse of the creation shall come to an end. The world and its riches will be restored to those who serve the Lord. The riches of creation will be delivered to the people of God. What was Israel going to use these, these riches for? When they went out into the wilderness, God was going to command them to give their silver and their gold to build a tabernacle. And the furnishings of the tabernacle Instruments intended to serve, to glorify, to worship the Lord. All of these riches that they were plundering from Egypt, it was all going to be put into service of God Himself. What we see there, this is, this is powerful. Not just because of how God worked in the hearts of the people of Egypt, but because how, of how it displays what will occur in the days yet to come. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 60 verses 5 and 6 says that when the day of the Lord dawns, he says it will be a day of darkness for the enemies of God, but also on that day you, the people of God, shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news and the praises of the Lord. The wealth of the nations, the riches of this world, it shall be all given for proclaiming the praise of God. Beloved, this too Christ Jesus has accomplished in rising from the dead. When he went to the cross, the kingdoms of this world sought to rob the firstborn of God. The Jews sought to steal his honor by condemning him to die among criminals. The Greeks or the Romans sought to steal his dignity and even the clothes from off his back. But having died, now he lives again and in his triumph he has delivered to you the riches of this world's kingdom. Now, now we don't yet see it in all its fullness, but the victory is ours in his victory. And the day soon will come when the kings of the earth shall bow to the people of God. And all their riches will be laid at your feet, entrusted into your hands to put to its proper use in service to God. That day is coming. Today, the wicked of the world often seem to prosper, but very soon when Christ returns, very soon when all men stand before him in judgment, the world will be cleansed of all the defilement of sin. And all of its riches, all of its glory, all of its resources will be entrusted to the people of God to use as it was intended. And also, now, this is not the main point of the text, but it's worth noting. God entrusted those riches to the Israelites. They would use it in service to God. When he took them out in the wilderness and he instructed them to build this tabernacle... He wasn't telling them to do something they had no clue how to do. 
They were going to use the skills and the talents and the abilities that they had developed and nurtured as slaves in captivity. They would take those skills learned as slaves and they would put them to their best possible use in glorifying God with the riches entrusted to them. Today, again, young people, I want you to think about this. Today, we labor in the wilderness. We don't yet see the fullness of the victory of Christ, though we know it's accomplished. And oftentimes, it seems like we're toiling for that which is passing away because we are. You're fixing a car that's just going to break again. You're building a house that will eventually, if Christ tarries, just fall into ruin. You're building things up that will immediately be subject to decay and you wonder, why am I putting all my labor into this? You're doing it, beloved, so that your skills, your abilities, your talents will be nurtured and developed and perfected because one day soon, Christ will return. All the world will be entrusted to you and you will use the gifts and the talents and the abilities that you've begun to foster here below And you will use them to bring glory and honor to God then. Your labor as Christians in this life is not in vain and is not merely a marking of time. But it will follow you, says 1 Corinthians 15, into eternity. Because God is going to deliver to you the riches of this world's kingdoms. How amazing. And there's one more section in our text. One more aspect of the deliverance that we have in Christ. Verses 37 to 39 describe the actual going forth of Israel out of Egypt. And look at what it shows us. Verse 37 says that this group that entered Egypt as 70 people, now there's 600,000. And that's just counting the men. This group that had begun as a relatively insignificant body, just one family. God has expanded into a mighty army, 600,000 men, and with them all their wives and all their children, nor was that all. Verse 38 says, a mixed multitude also went up with them. A mixed multitude. These were Egyptians who had learned to serve the Lord and and wanted to follow after Him. These were other captives who decided that they were best throwing their lot in with Israel and with their God. And along with them, much livestock. How many people were in this exodus? Honestly, we have no idea. It had to be at least a million and a half. Many experts believe it was twice that. They departed this magnificent, massive horde of people, multiplied from 70 entirely by the Lord's mercy. Don't miss the glorious message God sets before us there. In the death of His firstborn, God delivered His people to serve the Creator of this world. That's why Israel departed from Egypt. That's why Moses demanded their release. That's what Pharaoh expected when he said, Arise and go. 
The children of God went forth, not merely to be freed from an oppressive enslavement. Don't get that message. The message of this text isn't merely God hates slavery. God hates oppressive work conditions. God dislikes this particular geopolitical arrangement. It's not that at all. The message here is that God sends His people forth. He delivers them from the slavery into which they were born. Slavery to sin and to rebellion and to the death that it brings. And He delivers them that they might worship, that they might serve, that they might glorify God as they were created to do. And so shall we be delivered, be brought forth from the midst of a fallen world. Jesus did not die simply so that you could avoid eternal discomfort. Jesus died and rose again so that you could be forgiven of all your sins, so that you could be reconciled to the one who made you, so that you could be rendered holy in his sight. Jesus died and rose again so that you might live to worship and to serve your creator. He delivered us to serve God here and now. Gathering as we gather today as the people of God, lifting up our voices to praise Him, joining together to encourage each other. But also He earned for us a deliverance that will be complete at His return. When Jesus comes back, you will serve Him so fully that no aspect of your life will will be exempt from worship. You shall serve Him Certainly in your singing and in your confessing and in your speaking. But you will serve Him also in your rest and your recreation. You will serve Him and worship Him in your work, in your creating, in your forming, in your designing. All that we do will be done unto the glory and the honor of God. Now that day of complete deliverance, the full revealing of what Jesus has done. It's not here yet, but it's coming soon. Already it's accomplished. The firstborn son has died to pay your price. The firstborn son has risen to secure Satan's defeat. And now he waits only for the time to be ripe. He waits only for the last of the elect to be gathered before he comes and makes all things new. And that return will be sudden. Just as Israel's departure from Egypt was so sudden that their dough had no time to rise. Immediately, Pharaoh said, Arise and go! And they arose and they went. And so it will be when Jesus comes back in a heartbeat. The trumpet will sound, the dead will rise, the judgment will begin. We won't have time to prepare. We won't have time to anticipate. It will happen immediately. And so that means that today, today we need to be prepared. Don't wait Say, I'll figure it out later. I'll submit at another time. I'll get serious about the Lord when I'm a little older. Don't wait. Already, the King might be preparing to descend among us. Already today, the the end might be at hand. So today, we need to be trusting in the firstborn Son. The one who died that we might live. The one who rose that we might be victorious. And having turned to him, having confessed him, rejoice. Because he did all of that for you. And what we see dimly in the departure of 
Israel from Egypt will see in all of its fullness, in all of its triumph, very soon. To Christ, the victorious Son, be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have obtained in Christ the victory that we so desperately need. Make us to be eager for that fullness of the victory to be revealed and cause each one of us, Lord, to be ready for that day, trusting wholeheartedly in Jesus, living even now in preparation for that day and longing longing to hear the trumpet sound, longing to stand before you where we will be received as your sons and daughters because of faith in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray it all. Amen. Beloved, in response, let us marvel in song that Jesus would love us that much as to suffer what we deserve so that we might enjoy the glory and the blessing that he has brought. Number 355 in our Psalter hymnal. 355, O sacred head.